Blog Talk Radio. The Power of Literature. That's coming up next right here on The Right Stuff. Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to be talking to a returning guest co-host and contributor today, Dr. Joseph Bentz. You may remember him because we've had him on the show several times, but this is the first time he's joined me on The Right Stuff. I'm really excited about this particular episode because we get a chance to preview his upcoming book, Talking About the Power of Literature. Now, you may be wondering, why is this even a conversation? Well, we do know that today people are arguing over books, whether some books should be censored, whether some books should be banned. We're arguing over that, but we need to talk about the power of literature. Why is it so important to our lives? How can literature help you and me? There's so much to the topic, and we'll get to it in just a few moments. As always, I want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We've been showcasing Christian authors for 10 years. As God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash right stuff. See what you can do. As always, we cover your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net. Click that pink follow button. You'll never miss a show. Also, subscribe to our new YouTube channel and be updated with new uploads every single time we do so. We're really excited about that channel. Can't wait to get you on board. Go ahead. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guest co-host today, Dr. Joseph Bentz. Dr. Joe, how you doing? All right, Parker. It's great to be back with you to have this conversation. Thanks for having me today. I got to tell our listeners, when I saw this on your Facebook, I was immediately enthralled with the idea because I love to read But there's a deeper context to this conversation. We're talking about the power of literature. And I'm deliberately saying it literature because I think I'll say it wrong if I say it any other way. (laughs) But it just kind of gets me going because literature, the root word I hear is lit, to light up. And so that's probably why I'm doing that deliberately. Or it could be that someone else said it that way and I always like saying it that way. So if I'm saying it wrong, dear listener, pray for me. (laughs) But Dr. Joe, tell me what was the... Genesis behind writing this book about the power of literature? Where this book came from is I'm a writer, but I'm also a literature professor, and I teach many 100 level, freshman level literature courses. And those courses are for non English majors. So they're nursing majors, business majors, all sorts of majors. And what I've noticed over the years is that many students come into those courses. And they're very skeptical of literature or even hostile to it or even afraid of it. They've had some sort of bad experience with it, maybe in high school or in some other way. They've decided literature is just not for them. But what I have found, I start every class now, every semester, by saying, if you don't love literature more by the end of this semester than you do right now, then this course has been a failure. Because what I've seen is that students, even the most reluctant ones, if they get a taste of what literature can do, and if it's presented to them in a certain way, which is what I hope to do in this book, not just for students, but for readers generally, 
lovers of literature and skeptics of it, then they can get over that reluctance or that fear or that hostility to literature. And many of them really become lifelong lovers of reading. That's really my goal with this, to show in the book what are the things that reading and literature, I use the word literature, but really it's not as narrow as that word might sound. I'm talking about novels, poetry, plays, whether they, they're in the literary canon, whether they're the classics or not. What can reading these things do for you, even some unexpected things, things that you may never have thought of? And I found that if you just, if readers will just give it a try, they can add something to their lives that will bring them pleasure and joy. Let's talk about what can be some barriers to people who are skeptical of literature. What are some experiences that you have heard over the years that has aided in the skeptic's desire to not get involved in reading literature? One of the barriers, let's take poetry because for many students and readers generally, poetry is the one they're most worried about. So I start my class with poetry. So what students will often say about poetry is, oh, it seems too hard, it seems too complicated. If the poet wants to say something, why don't they just say it? Why does it have to be in this language that you have to interpret? One of the things that I get into with them is I show them that, first of all, poetry is not a math problem to be figured out. That's how many of them as students, and I don't blame them for this. They've been, as students, they're taught to figure things out because they have to get something right on an exam or something like that. Poetry is not a math problem to be solved with many poems you can summarize the meaning in a sentence. Poetry is an experience to be had. So it's not just about the bottom line meaning, but it's also about the sound, the music of it, if you will, the rhythm, the rhyme, the structure, the particular way that a truth is arrived at. So that a poem, if it works well, and I try to show them some that they will love and they end up loving them and they end up saying, oh, if that's what it is, then I will buy into it. Because once they can get past the complication or feel like the poet is just trying to fool them or be obscure or hide the meaning, then they can enjoy it. So that's one of the things, that's one of the barriers with poetry. Another one, if I could mention another one that has to do more with novels and fiction is that students say reading is just hard. And in the book, I deal a little bit with the fact that reading is hard. Reading is not really a natural act. It's not a natural thing to do. We have to learn to do it. And it takes a lot of brain power to do it. But the argument that I make in the book is that, yes, it's going to take some effort, but the effort is worth the payoff. And I compare it to other things that we like to learn to do. Any kind of skill you have, if you can play the guitar, or if you can play basketball, or if you can sew, or if you can cook, any of these things that you learn to do, at first, 
it's really hard. I have seen people, for example, even my own kids, try to pick up the guitar to learn to play it. Well, if you're a child and you try to learn how to play the guitar, you expect to suddenly start playing beautiful music. Obviously, that doesn't happen. You spend a long time with the frustration, with the learning of the skill, but eventually you break through that and it becomes easier and it becomes more natural. And reading, it can be that way. Now, for some people, for people who love reading and who've loved it since they were little, they are already at that point and they don't understand why other people don't see it that same way, why other people don't love it too. But what I urge students who find it difficult, just the, the reading itself, is give yourself time to do it. Let yourself read slowly at first. Give yourself time to develop that natural skill of it, that, that skill that can build. Rather, it's not really natural, but it's a skill that you can build over time. And once you break through that, then the pleasure of it comes. It may not come right away but it won't take that long. I mean, I've seen students even over the course of a semester learn how to break through some of that difficulty and then find it pleasurable if they understand it that way, that yes, everybody at first has trouble with this, but then it's a skill worth learning because you're gonna love it eventually. Let's talk about something you said, and I wanna go back to poetry. Because even though I am a writer and I enjoy reading, poetry is, in my opinion, very difficult to do. One of the poems I recently became aware of was the poem by T.S. Eliot called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And the only reason why I became aware of it was because one of my guests on this show, her name is C.J. Johnson, her mermaid story The title of it is Till Human Voices Awake Us. And I said, I had never heard these words before ever. And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. Till Human Voices Awake Us, Wake Us, or something like that. And I said, huh. And I was just really blown away by the idea. She goes, oh, yeah, T.S. Eliot, he's, and she started to go on to his style of poetry. And I said, who's T.S. Eliot? (laughs) This is me because I don't read poetry. But because she mentioned that one phrase, you have made the statement that poetry is an experience. And that one phrase actually gave me so many ideas because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how she was going to use that and connect it to the title with the mermaids. I didn't know any of that. And I said, huh, it really is an experience when you do poetry. And I had the opportunity to preview some of Dr. Joe's chapters of this book. And there's one where he's talking about poetry. And when you first look at it, you go, that is not poetry. This is syntax errors. (laughs) It looks like syntax errors, right? And I said, no, that's not poetry. And then I've kept reading because I'm probably with one of your students when it comes to poetry, at least. Like, this is just nonsense. Why do poets have to be so ambiguous? Why can't they just say it? But then you just said poetry is an experience and the poet doesn't necessarily want to feed you their meaning because I think and this is just me as a uh, as a writer I think the joy is in seeing how your words that you have planned can affect different people in different ways so go ahead and expand on why this is actually a strength when it comes to reading and interpreting literature as it relates to poetry 
Right. You mentioned the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and that's a great example, I think, and I teach that often. That poem is a modernist poem. It's written about 100 years ago, and it's very fragmented. So when you first read it, oh, it seems to make no sense. What's going on here? But as we read it and study it in class, what you'll see is it's fragmented on purpose. This was Eliot's idea. And if you look at different sections of it, they do, they are meaningful, but they hint at things. So Prufrock is this very shy, awkward man, and he is trying to romanticize this woman and being very unsuccessful at it. Well, you can see in the fragments of his thoughts and his actions the struggles that he is having in attracting this woman to him. But it doesn't give the whole story. It gives fragments of it. Well, what you can do as a reader is you fill in those gaps because we all know that situation. That situation's familiar, that awkwardness you feel around somebody that you are attracted to, but who may not be so into you. <laughs> and so that poem, so if you, if once I get the readers to just relax with that poem and not try to make it all cohere, but just let it be fragmented, well then let's look at the fragments and what can we fill in from our own experience and our own understanding of that. And so, and then you can go line by line, section by section, and it's very meaningful. So one of the things I think that happens with literature, whether it's poetry or whether it's novels like you write or whether what other kind of literature it is, is that the reader is always co-creating with the author. It happens more in poetry maybe than it does in other genres like fiction. But even in fiction, if you think about the novels, Parker, that you write, you will describe a scene, you will describe a plot that's happening, but your reader is the one that has to picture that in their head. They have to picture this character that you're describing. They have to picture what's happening. They have to picture the place that this is happening in. And one of the things I love about that is that because I write novels as well, is that every reader has a different book inside their mind. So you write one novel, but however many readers you have, each of them really has a different novel in their head because they are creating it with you. They're not going to create the character in their head that looks exactly like the one in your head. So that's part of the joy of it, whether it's poetry or fiction or drama. Well, drama, if you see it on the stage, you get the artist, the director's view. But if you're reading a play, you know, I'm going to teach Hamlet this semester, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and look how many Hamlets there can be, you know, so how do you picture him? So that's part of the joy of literature is that readers are creating this as they're reading it. I want to touch on novels real quick, because you touched on it a little bit, but just to kind of give our readers and listeners an example. I was thinking about the book, The Idiot, by um, Dovesky, and I was doing some research because a friend of mine, she loves this book. I said, Parker, you need to read it. So I went to go pick it up, and I said, sweetheart, I'm not reading 800 pages right now. <laughs> so I told her, right? 
not because I don't read that big, but I was busy. I said, I don't have time to dedicate to it. But then I kind of got drawn into it anyway, you know. I suddenly start reading it, and I start to read it, and I start to realize that this character, the idiot, the prince, he is a good man surrounded by frail humanity, right? And he is surrounded by trying to be a good person. And from what I can get, and I would love to get your thoughts on this too, Dr. Benson, I get the impression that Dovesky is trying to let us know that good people are idiots. I think that's kind of like what I was getting from. I may have it wrong. I didn't get a chance to finish the whole thing, but I wanted to get your interpretation of it because everyone treats him weird. And he's, you know, I'm trying to say, Dr. Benz, you, you go ahead and because you're more probably more versatile than I am. So talk to the listeners about that. So go ahead. I'm not familiar with that book. So I don't know. I would hate to say too much about that because I have not taught that one. But it was one I was thinking of as you were talking about, because I do know that this book was inspired by a painting of Christ. And the painting of Christ was from one of the Dutch masters from back in the day. So he wrote roughly in the 1800s. The painting of Christ he saw was probably in the 15 or 1600s during the Dutch Renaissance, you know. And the painting was a Christ in a tomb. And, you know, they showed the Christ emaciated, pained, bruised. And his wife said it really affected him really badly. And when the Dutch masters created the painting, those type of things, they were to show humility. Like, look what Christ did for us and how our sin affected his body. You see see what I'm trying to say? And so, but that was 300, 200 years ago before Dvesky came into play. So he's seen it completely different. The changes in Russia are going on. Spirituality is changing. Religion is changing. All these things are changing. And he was inspired by that painting. When I looked at some of the notes later, towards the end of the book, there's a scene where this lady dies and they're waiting for her. They watch over her body all night because he still has the idea that she's going to resurrect, that she's going to not really be dead, referring to that painting again. So there's a lot going on with the novels. And so when people say, well, I don't want to, read literature is too hard, you want to also look at what the author's life is like, because that's going to add something to the story as well. Do I sound a little bit off? Did I go completely off the deep end, (laughs) Dr. Joe? No, not at all. I think your last point there about the author's life, I think that can be helpful. And also, if I could say, in one of the chapters in the book that I get into, which is surprising concept for student readers, is that the author's background and the author's intention are not the last word in the meaning of a book. And this is something we often, that I get a lot of pushback from students on, but I think it's worth dealing with because the students will often think at first, well, what you're doing when you're interpreting literature is simply figuring out, well, what did the author intend? And then that would be the meaning. But what actually happens is is that it's more complicated than that. Sometimes an author will intend something, but what actually they produce is something different. It's just like if I, I have very limited artistic skills. So I could try to paint a portrait of you, and I could say, here is my portrait of Parker Cole. Well, people who know you would say that looks nothing like her. Well, just because I intended it to be a portrait of you doesn't mean that that's what it actually is. And with literature, 
with novels, let's say, let's just take novels. Novelists, their own reason for writing, their own deep motivation is often that they are dealing with things that are so deep and hidden within them that they are not consciously aware of what they are. So that when they write a book, they are really working out psychological and spiritual issues that they're not completely consciously aware of. So they think they're writing one type of book or one message, but often readers will find more than that when they read it. That is not cheating. That is not going against what the book is about. Once a writer releases a work into the world, then readers will interpret it often differently than a writer does. And I teach mostly American literature. That's my specialty. And often writers who have been interviewed about their books will just simply say wrong things about them, that things that not just interpretations that are questionable, but they just will forget the facts. They'll forget what they actually wrote. You see this, I teach William Faulkner and there are interviews that he's done where he just doesn't remember correctly what he actually wrote. So the author's intention and the author's background are important, but they're not the final word. One other thing about that is if you interpret a work autobiographically, let's say that you know that a writer was an alcoholic and is a white man who's an alcoholic. Let's say the writer is that. And then you read one of the writer's characters and that character happens to be a white man who's an alcoholic. One thing I stress over and over again, it is not safe to assume that that character then is that writer because what writers do, and you may know this as a novelist, is they borrow things from their own life and from the lives of people they know and from situations they've been in, but they jumble them all up for the purposes of their work. And so, and I've done this with my novels. I have a novel, my novel, A Son Comes Home. I borrowed details from my father's life to make a character, to use for a character, but in many ways that character is very different from my father. And I will have scenes in that book where I'm borrowing things from different parts of my life, different eras of it, different decades even, and I'm mixing up people who never knew each other and doing what I need to do for the sake of the plot of that book. So if people interpreted it completely autobiographically and tried to say this is about Joe Benz's life, they would get it wrong. So those things are things to watch out for for readers when they are reading a book and interpreting it. Lastly, I want to go to drama. And the first thing that came to mind as you were talking about drama was things on screen. Last year, Dr. Bentz, I was on a Shakespeare kick. I was watching every Shakespeare movie I could think of. And the one I really enjoyed that I saw several times was Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh, Denzel Washington, and a couple other people. And I really enjoyed that interpretation of Much Ado About Nothing. I thought it was hysterical. I was laughing. It was the first time I watched Shakespeare and understood what they were saying, because we're so used to being something difficult to read or watch. Then after that, I end up watching a movie 
with Ralph Fine called Coriolanus, which was a really good movie. And then I watched Denzel Washington play Macbeth in a, I think it was 2020 or 2021 adaptation of Macbeth. Yes, I saw that recently. Mm -hmm. And it was very minimalist. And Denzel Washington had a very compelling presence, but it's Denzel Washington. So what do you expect? Then I saw A Midsummer Night's Dream from back in the 90s, I think, which I did not like. But I started to see all these different things. And then, of course, I watched Romeo and Juliet. I watched the one from back in the 60s. And I tried to watch the one from the 90s, but it was too current for me, so I didn't watch it. But I started to understand something. And then, Oh, and then I watched Hamlet. I watched the Hamlet with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, with Kenneth Branagh. And I watched the Hamlet with Mel Gibson. And the one with Mel Gibson was actually more entertaining if you will, his interpretation of Hamlet and some of the things that they did in the movie, because you were like, what is going on here? You know. <laughs> so, but when you were talking about drama, how does that play into literature and how does it help people who are really starting to get into this thing about literature? How does that help them further appreciate drama? Well, Shakespeare is, as you say, the language is a barrier for many readers at first, because this is 400 years ago. This is Elizabethan England. And so they spoke differently and the, much of the vocabulary was different. So I think one of the good ways to get into Shakespeare is just what you did to watch the play. These plays were written, were written to be performed, after all, not originally written to be read. So I think, but sometimes People think, oh, is it cheating to watch it first before I read it? No, it's not cheating. It's actually a good thing to do. Realizing, though, that each performance is an interpretation of it. And just like with the Mel Gibson version of Hamlet compared to Kenneth Branagh, they, Mel Gibson especially takes a lot of liberties with scenes and the order in which scenes are placed, whereas Branagh, it takes more of a, I'm going to do the entire play and every scene in it and not cut anything the way people often do with Hamlet since it's so long. But when you read Shakespeare, one of the things that I tell readers who are worried about the language is that what happens with it as you read it is at first, the first few scenes you're going to read, it's going to seem very, almost like you're reading a foreign language for some readers. What I urge students to do is simply keep going, keep going. Don't worry about whether you're understanding every line, every word, because what I've seen is that if they keep going, eventually it starts to make more sense. And there's sort of a breakthrough that happens at some point. I've seen this over and over again with people reading Shakespeare that at first you're completely aware of the difficulty of the language, but then at the more you hear it in your head as you read it, there's eventually a time when you sort of break through that and then the play starts happening in your head. So if you can be patient long enough, the payoff is worth it because Shakespeare cuts right to the core of what it is to be a human being. And the reason that we're still reading him 400 years later is that he knows things and reveals things about relationships, about father and son, parent, child, men and women, 
all these aspects of grief and tragedy and longing and love. He really is masterful at getting at that. So it's well worth sticking with it with Shakespeare, but also watching it. Also, sometimes people will read it as they are watching it or listening to it on an audiobook format or something like that. And that all those things are helpful. I think that's what gave me a new appreciation for Shakespeare was watching the plays and understanding some of the concepts behind them, what they were saying. Right now, I think my favorite was Coriolinus because I had never heard of it before. And someone on my Facebook said, if you want to watch one, watch Coriolinus. And Ralph Fiennes and Gerard Butler were in that one. And they just did great performances. And there are a lot of things going on. I was actually inspired by it. So it may, it may want to write my own version of Coriolinus. <laughs> But in a space sci-fi thing. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> I look forward to that. Yeah, actually, it's called Choreo, and it's going to be a, a female warrior, and uh, we'll go from there. So that's all I have. But I got really inspired by it. And then when I saw Much Ado About Nothing, I could see the comedy involved, and I like that. And the thing about Shakespeare, as I was doing research for one of my books, Dr. Bentz, was that Shakespeare, back in his time, I think they were like body plays. Like they weren't like this highbrow entertainment we consider nowadays. I think back in Shakespeare's time, they were like, oh, it's a play, some Shakespeare guy. That's what I think now. And then over time, they became like this highbrow entertainment. And during the 19th century, especially before television and radio, it was the entertainment of the 19th century. It was it. There were, it defined America in particular. I won my books and I'm going to give myself a, Pat on the back here. <laughs> in my book, The Butcher's Daughter, I explore that Shakespeare was it. Miners were able to quote Shakespeare from aristocratic circles could quote Shakespeare. It was up there with the Bible. Okay, so Shakespeare was the form of entertainment. And there were two men, and you may remember this, Dr. Bentz. His name escapes me. He was like the American Shakespearean and another guy was the English Shakespearean. There was this big, huge rivalry between them. And the Americans felt like he's our guy. The British and aristocrats felt like he's our guy. And there was a massive riot that happened at a theater because of these two men. Okay. And so Shakespeare was it. You know, you kind of, it's like getting worked up at a Justin Bieber concert. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that would be crazy for that to happen. But it can because you kind of personify themselves into these people, right? So Shakespeare was that type of entertainment. And nowadays, we still see it as highbrow entertainment, and only certain people are privy to it. And I think you would say certain people aren't privy to it. We're all able to enjoy literature. And that's what your book is going to be talking about, is that power of literature and how we can all be a part of it and embrace it. Right. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to this is not some self-improvement thing or, you know, this is not like, you know, going on a diet or getting out of debt or something. I'll, all I'm trying to do is show that literature may have more to offer you than you think it does. And so I'm asking, just take a look at it in these various ways. And I'm trying to show in the book different perspectives that you can take on it and then give it a try if you want to and see if it doesn't make your life more joyful. Dr. Bentz, I want to thank you so much for being with me on the show today. As you know, I always enjoy having you. 
Dear listener, we just gave you a preview of his upcoming book. And when his book is ready, we're going to also probably more than likely have him back on to really expand on it. But this is just a preview of the power of literature, what you're going to get when you get inside these books. Okay, so stay tuned. We're going to have him back to talk more about his book when it's released. But I just wanted to give you a preview because I love to read. (laughs) I love reading. I can't imagine a world without it. Dr. Joe and I, before we started recording, we were saying, like, if you are a diehard reader, when you're looking for entertainment, you're looking for a book and you're looking for something to lose yourself in. It doesn't matter what it is. And so for those of you who don't like to read, who don't think literature is something you need to invest into, by the time you read this book, The Power of Literature, I know your mind will change. Dr. Vince, if they want to get in contact with you, where can they find you online? I have a website www.josephbents.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Benz, for being with me on the show. Can't wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Thanks so much. It's been fun. And we were talking today about the power of literature. I know some of you out there are listening to me. You like to read, but you also like to write. You don't know where to start. Are you a poet? Are you a playwright? Are you a novelist? What are you? How can you figure that out? Well, the first thing you have to do is pick up the pen and write stuff. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen, Parker J, and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day.